Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. We are back, Steve, a little bit of a summer hiatus. Yeah, a little lull in the old uh, markets, as we've seen across the board. But yeah, we are back. It's good to be back, back outside again. Yeah, so we uh, we need a little bit of help. We need to go outside the ranks of the development industry and get a real economist into, into help us. So why don't you give us a little background on our guest today. Yeah, why not? Yeah, we have Brett House in the house today. Yeah, I'm sure that's always not the, in the house. I'm not sure that's not the first time you've heard that Yeah, we tried for death. Maria Kondo, but we had to go with Brett House instead. Brett is I a... I still spark joy. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Well. We're going to spark joy all afternoon here. This is going to be fun. So let's welcome Mr. Brett House to the house. For those of you who don't know him, he is a macroeconomist and former vice president and deputy chief economist at Scotiabank. Mr. House cut his teeth in the financial markets at Goldman Sachs in London and at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. Brett has also served as principal advisor in the executive office of the United Nations and as economist at the International Monetary Fund. Mr. House is a Rhodes Scholar and holds degrees in economics from the University of Oxford and Kingston, Ontario's very own Queen's University. Brett serves on the investment committees of the board's of Pearson College, Massey College, and the Canadian Rhodes Scholars Foundation. He is additionally a member of the board of the Canadian Association for Business Economics and the 519, Toronto's municipal organization dedicated to advocacy for the inclusion of the LGBTQ plus communities. We're very honored to have Mr. House in the house. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Wow, that was a uh, impressive bio. We've got a, a couple smart guests. We have had uh, we had a uh, Harvard grad, a last Harvard week. Uh, graduate. Now we have a Rhodes Scholar, uh, Oxford. Jeez, I'd we... like to get into what really goes into becoming a Rhodes Scholar. But why don't you tell us who the show's brought to you by? Today? Well, the show is brought to you by the award-winning <laughs> Plus Group. You thought I'd never ask. <laughs> They're comprised of five distinct companies: RN Design, SRN. Architects, Salesfish, Sales Software, Kool Aid Studios, and Studio Uno ID, offering services in marketing, architecture, interior design, and real estate software. Their mission is simple revolutionize the real estate industry through efficiency, innovation, and quality while adding value to the client experience. For more information on the Plus Group or any of their five companies, please visit theplusgroup.ca. Smooth. Yeah, like that was good. Real smooth. Smooth. Well, we yeah. have a smooth, smooth guest. Let's get into it. Let's so, get Brett, into welcome it. Yeah. to the show. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here in your backyard. Yeah. We'll keep the conversation as casual as we can in this absolute turbulent market and uh, crazy times we're experiencing. It's uh, the end of July, recording on a Wednesday, hopefully to get this thing live on a Friday to really uh, nail down what's going on. But before we get into the chaos, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started and uh, where you grew up and... You know, give us, give what, us the Coles Notes what version. Led, what, leads to, uh, what leads one to becoming a Rhodes Scholar? <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to a house scholar, yes. uh, given we're talking yes. about construction. Uh, well, I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up in Vineland, Ontario, just west of St. Catharines in the wine region and Fruit Belt. Uh, and that's an area where my Mennonite background has been for over 200 years. Wow. And so it's, uh, you know, it's a great place to grow up. It's not far from the big smoke. We could see Toronto across the lake. Uh, 
came over here a lot for shows and shopping and baseball and such, but um, it's still a really small town here in Southern Ontario, and so it's kind of the best of both worlds. Um, and, uh, you know, growing up there made me keenly interested in economics when I actually came to understand what it is in high school because of two things. There's a strong sense of community and solidarity and wanting to make sure everyone flourishes. And being close to Toronto, you get a lot of window on the world on big forces that sometimes make that easier or harder. And as I studied and went through school and then university and grad school, I wanted to figure out what are the things we can do that makes it easier for people to succeed rather than harder. So and to right, me, that's what economics is about. And it was right out of high school that you're interested. It was. I had a really inspiring economics teacher in my last two years of high school uh, out on Vancouver Island. And uh, like a lot of his students, uh, I ended up seeing economics as the, the window or the lens through which I could make the biggest impact on the world. Interesting. So you ended up in, in uh, B.C., but then back to Kingston for an undergrad at Queen's University? Yeah, I was fortunate to get a scholarship to go to an international school, Pearson College, that is Canada's memorial to the Prime Minister. Oh, yeah. And then uh, went to Queen's because it was the best economics department in Canada at the time. And the guy who wrote our textbook was based there. Oh, yeah. And I thought, you know, go to where the gunfire is for on sure. that front. Uh, and then was fortunate to study in Scotland at St. Andrews at the University of Cape Town and at Oxford eventually. And so got to see economics from a lot of different ac academic perspectives. So without telling, I mean, we could probably talk about those experiences for an hour on their own, but give us one little uh, aha moment when you were... Uh, abroad studying when you're like, wow, this is this is something I, I really like. Yeah, there's a Nobel Prize lecture from 1990, I think, by Robert Lucas, who uh, was at the time professor at the University of Chicago. And he talked about studying economic growth and development as the most compelling thing you could do in life. Because if you could figure out the key levers or drivers that would make a society grow and generate wealth more quickly, the impact on human well-being would be enormous. And he cited the example of South Korea, which at the end of the Korean War, no one was betting on being a success. All the resources, all the industrial capacity uh, was in the North South Korea had been flattened and had almost nothing going for it. But we all know what happened since then. South Korea has been a smashing economic miracle. And in 1960, on a per capita basis, uh, individual wealth in South Korea was lower than Egypt, lower than India. It's now over 20 times what per capita wealth is in both those countries. If you can figure out the key things that they did, and I don't mean just reducing this to culture or history, because you can't do much about that, but if you can figure out the policies or the things they built that led to that performance and replicate them elsewhere, the impact on human well-being could be enormous. And to me, that was the aha, sitting in different countries and different economic systems and thinking about what are they doing right, what could they improve, and what are the lessons we can draw from that. And have you? did you ever figure out what those key levers were that they pulled to 
achieve such success? Well, you know, we're still studying that in a lot of ways. That's a work in progress because the things you need to do are probably specific in some cases to the time we're in and the challenges we face. And in other cases, there are few enduring immutable things like the rule of law, uh, steady regulatory frameworks, predictability so that people can invest both in their own human capital and in, in business or assets. What about democracy? You know, democracy, when we look at uh, cross-country regressions, has a pretty mixed impact on uh, economic growth and performance. I'd always say it's going to win out in the end, but given that you know, democracy has only been a really ubiquitous thing for about the last hundred years, some of our some of our studies would say we just haven't had enough data yet. Yeah. That's interesting because in some instances in our industry, democracy has been bad. For, for our industry, right? Because there's so many people that are against high-rise towers and against, you know, new housing development, and it drives up the cost of housing, and it's, uh, you know, bad economically for our, for our city. I mean, I think I am always advocate for more housing and even the government building housing, because even if they spend billions and billions of dollars, I think it pays itself back and less homelessness, less, you know, health issues, less uh, commuting, you know, all these things that uh, that the, the government almost ultimately has to pay for, pay for roads and pay for health care and pay for homeless services, pay for mental health. If we took all those things away and then added all the jobs that, that come into uh, building housing on a massive scale, that uh, we'd be in a much better position, but who knows? knows? I'm not going to side with a view that says uh, democracy has been bad for almost anything. What we might do is introduce a little bit of a nuance there, that how we express democratic uh, input and decision-making maybe works better in some circumstances than others. Uh, you know, for instance, around zoning and planning, which I think you're referring to, one of the difficult things in a city like Toronto has been, you know, articulation of plans, articulation of zoning zoning in neighborhoods, and then something that gets proposed for uh, that site that is consistent with those plans gets subject to continual review, reopening, and extends the process until it can actually be built. I don't think that's a problem with democracy. That's a problem with how you know we take it input, we process it, and we reach a decision that is reflective uh, of the community's interests, and it's good. And so you know, the move in places like Toronto and Vancouver, or I should say British Columbia and, and Ontario to, you know, installing comprehensive plans and then limiting the extent to which they can be continually reopened on a project-by-project basis. Maybe one of the ways to address the challenges that have been yeah. faced on they individual should, projects. We should just simply rezone the entire city, right? For, for high density. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that's the answer. And I don't think Brett would say that's the answer either. Brett lives in Cabbage Town. I think. I think if you say we're going to re- rezone, uh, we've, we've had developers on our, even on our podcast, who, who, who don't think we should open up the single-family neighborhoods to development, right? So, but you know, I think there is such a wide range of potential opportunities we have for increasing densification, which we have to do unquestionably in Toronto without having an either-or debate of high density or single-family dwellings in that yellow zone, you know, around the center of town. You've 
if you look at the work uh, Toronto did a few years ago on the Avenue study to increase mid-rise density along 19 major transit corridors, that would have been the kind of thing, if we see it carried through, that would introduce appropriate density along already highly serviced uh, arteries in the city without necessarily putting that density in random places and put it in places where traffic should be, you know, clustering around transit stations. It's amazing to me that in a city with the Bloor line, which is over 50 years old, you have a lot of stations where there's only one and two story development right around those stations. I, there swear, are, I swear I did not tell him to say that. <laughs> yeah. I did not pay him to say that. We did we, not collude ahead of time well, we, on we, that we, topic. We talk, we talk about it all the time and talk <laughs> yeah, about That was how, not planned. We talk about the inconsistent planning where you can have uh, you know 80 stories at Young and Bloor and you can have 70 stories at Young and Eglinton, but you can only have eight stories <laughs> at Young and Summerhill. Or right. Young and it's you know it's kind of ridiculous, right? But uh, anyways, let's let's get into your you know, you know your specialty and what we wanted to discuss a little bit is more the macro level of of what's happening in the in the world, and and then maybe we'll get back to the to the micro and and maybe you just your specific experiences in Toronto with uh, with real estate. So I I pulled this forecast, so it says the. OECD is forecasting that Canadian GDP is projected to grow by 3.8% in 2022 and 2.6% in 2023. Uh, so, you know, just maybe give us your high-level thoughts on the domestic economy and, and uh, are we heading to recession? You know, uh, OECD doesn't think we are, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, the OECD doesn't think so. The IMF doesn't think so. Uh, the Department of Finance and Bank of Canada in their latest forecasts don't think so. Um, compared with the numbers you cited from the OECD, more recent forecasts have put those growth rates for this year and next year and into 2024 a touch lower. Um, and those numbers have kept getting marked down over uh, the last six to nine months or so. Uh, but they consistently keep reflecting a consensus view by economists that while growth is going to be slower than we might have anticipated otherwise, it's not going to dip into negative territory. Or if it does at the margin, it's a brief trip into the red and comes back into the black again. Um, I think it's important to contextualize any number that we put out uh, by looking at the estimates that the Bank of Canada, Department of Finance, and private sector economists have of what we call the underlying potential rate of growth in Canada. So the rate of growth that we ought to see given the stock of capital we have, the labor force we have, the type of technology that we have writ large across the economy, and in the absence of any particular stimulus from the fiscal or monetary authority, we should expect only about 1.75% growth a year in Canada. So in that context, any number above that is a better than expected performance. And if you look at consensus forecasts right now, I believe that they're around 2.5-2.6% year-on-year for this year, around one8 next year, and then coming back up to around 27 in 2024. That speaks to a period that while... It doesn't seem as racy as last year with the really quick recovery from the pandemic uh, shutdowns that we saw is still a, a very decent performance by any measure against the last two decades. So, I, you know, I think we need to keep that in mind because I think people are measuring their sentiment against how they felt against really rapid reopening last year, we're coming back to something close to the normal and normal ain't all that bad. Yeah, I, I keep saying that about a number of different topics, including, you know, not to get drill down micro uh, to the micro level again, but 
even condo prices, you know, the flattening of the curve a little bit here. I think it's fine. The fact that, you know, we have prime is back to a normal number. I think that is fine. I do think there's like a, a vast overreaction to the fact that things are going back to like what I would call, like you're saying, general, generally normal numbers or healthy numbers. Um, but just in regards to GDP, and this is a, this is a great question. People do sometimes complain about it and our debt to G GDP numbers. But is it true that GDP is calculated very differently in other countries? I understand that Italy now includes the shadow economy in GDP, including drug transactions and prostitution. <laughs> That's yeah. a Ben Myers question. Yeah. But that is a Ben Myers question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to, to, to hear if this is... Yeah, how is, our, is, how is our debt? Like, are we, you know, people make a big deal about how much debt we have in comparison to GDP and, and household and, and debt compared to household income. That's one that people talk about all the time. Yeah, well, uh, on the first question on how GDP is calculated, you know, GDP is a relatively recent phenomenon. It's really from the 1930s and the yeah. 1940s. We didn't have measures of GDP right. before that. And in fact, talking about the economy at all is purely a 20th century phenomenon from uh, the 1920s or 30s onward. We we wouldn't have been talking about this or numbers without, you know, John Maynard Keynes, a guy named Kuznets who developed GDP measures in the US won a Nobel Prize for it. And then that became the set of metrics by which we define our performance year over year and against other countries. How GDP gets calculated is pretty standardized across countries. Places like uh, the United Nations agencies, the International Monetary Fund, publish manuals that most statistical agencies follow so that the numbers we get in every economy are more or less comparable. But you know, there are some individual differences here and there, but I would say they're very much on the margin. They're not, you know, substantially changing how we stack up one country versus another in a big way. Uh, you know, the thing about GDP is it's uh, it's a great measure for a whole lot of things we produce, but it isn't everything. You know, it doesn't yeah. measure, like, the beauty of the places we live in, you know, art, how well society feels. It doesn't um, it doesn't measure, you know, the, the level of our social connections. So, it's not everything, but it is something. And it's a pretty good baseline to compare to. And to your point about where are we with respect to GDP, one of the critical things to keep in mind is even with some of the leveling off we're experiencing, we are you know, at or above trend from where we would have been pre-pandemic on most substantial economic measures. And so even if, you know, their progress slows down a little bit more, we are no worse off, at least in the aggregate, than we would have been had the shutdowns hadn't happened. Individuals are very uh, differently uh, situated right now. Some people have done much better, some worse. So things have been redistributed, both in terms of activity and wealth, but the overall economy is back to where it was uh, pre-pandemic in terms of its trajectory. The one thing I like about Brett, and he mentioned this when he spoke at uh, a recent event that uh, we held, he had two comments. One was, Nobody likes a, what was, was it a one-handed economist? No, everyone or, wants a one-handed no, economist. Everyone wants one. No one wants a two-handed economist. Harry Truman said there are too, hand, too many two-handed economists. They keep telling me on the one hand, on the, the other, other hand. hand right. He's like, get rid of one of those hands. So, so very opinionated, always takes a stance, but generally very positive as well. So, I mean... Uh, I, I like listen. I, I like I like where you're, where you're coming from, and I feel like a lot of the the buzz in the media is just like negative, negative, negative. It's like what's going to sell? It's going to sell like doom and gloom and crash, and interest rates are going to destroy the world. Like I don't know. I, I feel like 
your approach and your view on it is listen we're, we're normalized we're back to normal levels we're flattening things out and let's get back to business well that, that leads us well into to the next question then so uh employment numbers look yep. pretty good in, in canada really strong and uh, in the u.s too we had a stronger than expected print last month yeah so so my, my question i had a kind of a three three things in here that i i see sometimes in the media what should we be what should we be more worried about Higher rates choking off investment in hiring, uh, labor shortage due to retiring boomers, or a labor oversupply due to record immigration. What do you think? Can, what do you think is going to be issues with employment moving forward? Well, you know, building on uh, the last point, the issue really here is one of time horizon. You know, what matters in the next six months, the next year is very different from what matters over the next two to three years in terms of our, our longer run development. In the very short run, rising rates are clearly changing the economic calculus for all kinds of activities, investments, and businesses over the longer term. But I think not disconnected from the short term, you know, constraints on the labor supply front are going to be one of the reasons uh, some economies stumble or continue to see stagnant growth coming out of the pandemic and why some perform much better. And I think Canada here has a unique superpower in remaining one of the only large economies in the world that's still positive about immigration. That's going to be For a sure. curb on inflation in the short run because we have some of the highest immigration numbers coming into the country this year and next year that we've seen since the World War II era. Um, and that's going to ensure over the longer run that growth and development here should be more sustainable than it is elsewhere, where they're facing you know, the twin effects of the overhang from the pandemic and uh, a big demographic in the boomer segment retiring. Have you, uh, have you, do you have any stats on the immigration numbers? I mean, I've heard from different sources in around the $400,000 uh, immigrants annually, of which 75% are coming to the GTA or Southern Ontario. Is that roughly right, correct? Or what would you say those numbers look like? Yeah, for this year and next year, the federal government is targeting around 400,000, 420,000 uh, new immigrants in the country. And typically, about 60 to 65% of new immigrants to Canada settle in Ontario and BC, with the vast majority of those in the GTHA and the Vancouver, Lower Mainland and Victoria regions. Do I have, I have a couple of questions on this because we talk about immigration all the time in our industry because it's fueled our, our industry in, in a lot of ways. But I'm curious because it's buzzwords get thrown around all the time. So first of all, when the when the immigration is opened up, the federal government approves X amount of people. Um, one one comment that, that comes up all the time is they're coming from very unstable countries with their, with their faith in their local governments and bank systems being very low. Therefore, their first purchase when they arrive is generally real estate. But they must be coming with a little bit of money. It's not like, you know, a lot of our, a lot of the investors I work with or a lot of, you know, these stories you hear of these guys three generations ago, they came with nothing but the clothes on their back and maybe, you know, 10 cents in their pocket. Today's immigrant is coming with from what I can tell, substantially more than that, with a bit of cash to invest, some net worth, some sort of you know way, means obviously of, of putting a down payment on a home because that's where this all this absorption is coming from. Is that is that fair to say? 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, the primary screening tool we have for Immigration to Canada is our point system, which uh, heavily emphasizes people's professional background uh, and skills that may be lacking in the Canadian economy, their age. Uh, so we want immigrants that are on the younger side and who are going to contribute over their working life in Canada and probably have kids or bring kids with them here. Um, you know, at various points in time, resources have been a channel to coming into a visa in Canada, but it doesn't represent the vast majority of immigrants here. Interesting. But what we do know is that immigrants perform incredibly successfully in Canada in terms of business creation, entrepreneurship, and employment. Um, while there is a gap between people born in Canada and immigrants in terms of unemployment rates for their first few years here. Those gaps narrow, and over time, uh, immigrants not born here generally end up doing a little better on the employment front than uh, Canadians born in Canada. How does that like, relate that? Like, speak to me in, in real estate terms, because, I mean, we're so caught up. 400,000 people are coming to Canada. We've got all these condos being built. Someone's got to buy these condos. Like, where's the correlation between immigration, at least new immigration, and real estate development or absorption of new real estate. Oh, you got to live somewhere. Well, I know, but, but, but that's my whole, goes back to my whole comment with the housing prices being so exorbitantly high, you can't even buy a townhouse in a small market for under a million dollars. So unless you're coming, you got no credit score, you got no banking history in Canada, you obviously have to buy these houses with some level of significant cash. It's not like you're buying it with 90% debt with no credit history in Canada. So, so there's got to be some sort of like, either they're coming with you know, fifty percent down or sixty percent down, which in today's world means six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. Well, they don't have to be arriving with that. Uh, it's absolutely true; they have to live somewhere. So, you know, when people initially arrive in Canada, just as people already here can do, they don't have to buy; they can rent. And you know, from a real estate investment perspective, I think what's important is the not the the level of resources a new immigrant is bringing, On but one. more broadly, the imbalance structurally between supply and demand in our major cities. And we know in Toronto and Vancouver, where the vast majority of immigrants end up, we have a long-standing structural undersupply of housing. When you look at new and existing inventory in Toronto and Vancouver, adjusted for population, they are just off decanal lows and well below their 20-year averages in both City. So, you know, there's some tendency to just look at the number of homes available and new and existing inventory. We really need to look at it against population, bring in, you know, those immigrant numbers for a second metric as well, where we look at new completions yeah. versus additions to the population in Canada, both from immigration, temporary foreign workers, and live births here. And that ratio of new completions to uh, new additions to the population is set to go to one of the lowest levels it's been at in 40 years. Really? It's been on a decline over that time consistently for 40 years. I think years. we all intuitively know that. I just, I'm just, it just, it, well, hearing it, it from a professional and, and being explained makes a lot of sense. Like, is there like a percentage or how do you rate? But, you know, it, 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 it it's been on about a 50% reduction in terms of that ratio. Like year from, over year? Uh, no, over the last 40 years. So, okay, a high 40 years ago, we have halved that ratio wow. over the last 40 and, years. And in all indications, this is going to continue to decline. 
it, it, you know, it, it's likely to hit an all-time low this year and next year because of those immigration numbers that wow. we're anticipating, which make up about 75% of population growth in Canada every year. Wow. But the other thing I always like to point out is completions is not the best metric of supply, right? The best metric of supply is square footage or probably bedrooms, right? And, and no one really tracks how many bedrooms or square footage is built every year. So, you know, going back to 2000, we built more homes in the Toronto CMA in 2002 than we did in 2020. Yep. And in 2002, the average was probably a 1,600 square foot townhome, right? Yeah. Now yeah. the average is a 800 square foot, two bedroom apartment, <laughs> right? Just on an average, you know, oh, on an average, average of all housing, taking into consideration a 7,000-square-foot single detached in Thornhill. I, and, was, I uh, was just talking to someone who's building 400-square-foot studios for 2,000 bucks a foot in Kitchener. Oh. <laughs> I was just wow. like, what? Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's a few. there's been a yeah. few projects that have launched recently with 40 to 60% studios, and studios are averaging 325 square feet, right? So the market is uh, the market is shifting really, uh, really quickly. Yeah, Brett, so, you must have an opinion on that, like yeah. bedrooms – as completions versus units as completions. Well, too, you know, right? number of bedrooms or square footage would be a cleaner metric, I think, undoubtedly, if we had that. Uh, but you would also then want to layer onto it average household size, which has been on a consistent decline since the 1870s in Canada. We used to have an average of six to seven people in a home, and now it's around 2.3 or 2.4. And that also has been a steady decline over and, well and, over and 100 years. And part of that is also because the units are shrinking because of affordability so you can't put two people in 325 square yeah, feet but, right but, so. but i think the other the, like with the aging demographic and and you know the uh the rate of of uh i guess of family homes being more increasingly occupied by one occupant so mm -hmm. for example like i used to live off the danforth and you again subway stations broadview station you can go along you can go east along on uh danforth no development all surrounded by single family homes and for the not not I don't know I mean like I don't have a, a this is this thesis isn't backed by any stats but uh, but there are a number there are a lot of four bedroom homes that are just occupied by one elderly person and they're they are, they have a, they have a vote in that jurisdiction and you know they're a constituent to the to the MPP they vote and they're they're like no no development no development meanwhile one person lives in 3000 square foot well, home it's, the, it's the, like the, that to me is a, a significant problem the other issue that's happening in Toronto is that people are not having children because they can't afford them right some people only have one kid when normally uh, maybe 40 years ago they would have had two or three kids right like i have three kids and you, you honestly have to be pretty <laughs> pretty well off to have three kids in the city of toronto right you know in terms of uh, if you want to put them in daycare and after school think, programs I think, and i think that's and why sport. elon musk is ruffling so many feathers talking about that our only purpose in the world is to procreate and everyone's like yeah it's because you're a freaking billionaire <laughs> you can afford it <laughs> well it, it's one of the reasons why something like the federal government's initiative on affordable daycare is a growth so policy yeah. it's so important to make sure that people can both have the economic wherewithal to have children if they wish to and if they do so that women can main, maintain their involvement in the labor force because we know when Quebec brought in affordable daycare it led to a substantial narrowing in the difference in participation rates between men and women if we got that same catch up in the rest of the country as a result of this policy it would 
be even more impactful than the immigration numbers we're talking about in terms of economic growth and well-being. Yeah. Um, it could add on the order of about $40 billion a year to GDP. Uh, wow. Year over year. That's not a one-off. That's a every that's year addition. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That gets back to your what policies can make such a big difference, right? Like I was paying more in daycare costs than I was for my mortgage for a while when I had, you know, uh, two toddlers in in, uh, in daycare. So I just think it makes such a huge difference to, uh, you know, to to do that. And, and obviously the pandemic also had an impact on, you know, how many females were then now in charge of the kids while us lazy males sat around. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's one of the important reasons we need to think about housing and planning around it as an integrated part of our growth strategy, of our social strategy, because it would be a horrible thing if growth gets constrained more than it already is, just because people have to live an incredibly long way from where they need to work or right. from the services that they need to access. It's an astounding thing to me that outside almost every condo construction site in downtown Toronto, there's a sign from the Toronto District School Board saying, you know, if you move in here and you have kids, there's no guarantee they can go to school anywhere nearby here. That's a massive failure <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. of urban design and planning, and yet we see it everywhere, and we, yeah. we become completely inured to we it. We almost ignore it. And I mean, well, I see yeah. it, and you know what it is, and you don't even... But people complain. It. Why aren't the developers building more three-bedroom units and, and family-sized units? One, families don't want to wait five years to take occupancy and pay 20% down when they can buy in the resale for five. But two, there's not even the schools for them to go to, and then the daycare costs are astronomical, right? Yeah. You know, like... So how do we fix this problem? There's, let's, let's come up with some, some solutions here. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think one of the most important things is going to be expanding supply uh, more quickly and in a more variegated way than uh, we've seen in the last 20 years. That steady decline in completions versus population growth has got to be reversed. Uh, otherwise, we are going to keep seeing a lot of social dislocation, people stopping, you know, having faith in the system that they can actually get ahead. One of my big worries is that it might also tilt Canada away from that really unique pro-immigration stance. If people start connecting the dots and saying more people coming in is making housing less affordable for us, that's a vicious circle we don't want to get into right. at all. We're seeing a lot of that language too coming yeah. out. But. Yeah. So that's, you know, there, there, there's a social, there's a growth, and then there's a, a community design piece to this. And I think what is critical is that we need to develop a way to to streamline the planning and approvals process, ensure we get some of that soft densification happening in single-family neighborhoods along major transit arteries, and uh, you know, ensuring we've got services that are being built in concert with that so people can access what they need within 15 minutes. They can live in their neighborhood, work in their neighborhood, do the things that they need to be able to do in those neighborhoods. Sounds well, so simple let's, when you let's, put it uh, let, Let's jump back to the, the, the macro again because I really, I really want to get your expertise on on this and and Steve talk a little about the the buzzwords that are out there but probably the biggest buzzword that you've already talked about is inflation you know it's one of the biggest talking points uh, out there right now and, and certainly concern for those in the development industry is there really much that the Bank of Canada can do with all you know the international supply bottlenecks high energy costs you know give us your kind of your two cents on where infl in, uh, inflation is going to be trending moving forward well you know, I want to preface anything we say about inflation uh, with some kudos to policymakers, because I think they're getting beaten up a lot by <laughs> the punditry, by the media, yeah. by politicians. Uh, we had 
truly an unprecedented depth and quickness to the downturn when we shut activity down in response to the pandemic in March 2020. The recovery has been much faster than anyone expected, including myself, including all the economists on Bay Street. You saw continual revisions of forecasts to be better and better and better over uh, 2020 and throughout 2021. The fact that we are today above trend on employment and economic activity uh, compared with the pre-pandemic period is not an outcome by this point that I think anyone would have taken a bet on predicting. Right. So I say high five to Tiff Macklin. See, this is this guy. He's so positive. I love I it. I say high five you know, to Christian Freeland for you know getting support out the door incredibly quickly. Now, there's a debate, of course, and I think it's a good debate that says maybe a little too much support got pushed out the door for too long. Maybe the Bank of Canada and other central banks kept monetary policy too accommodative for too long. And combined, that's why we're seeing, you know, the inflation we're seeing now. I think, you know, there's a certain amount of Monday Monday morning quarterbacking going on here that already has amnesia about how much uncertainty we felt as recently as this last December, January, when Omicron was getting going. You know, and we were starting to put in restrictions again. It would have been incredibly premature, I believe, at that time for a policymaker to start pulling back support in the midst of that, knowing they might have to provide it again. You know, no one wants to be doing stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. The same people who are lambasting central banks and finance ministries for doing too much for too long would have been absolutely crucifying them if they had pulled the support back. Omicron ended up being more serious than we you know, saw it, was, it being. Yeah. And then they had to ramp everything up again. So I just think it's really important to foreground anything we say in that sense of this stuff is hard. And policymakers learned a lot of lessons from the past, and they did a pretty good job. Now, um, you know, what is driving inflation? You know, there, there are some big global phenomena here because every country is being hit by it, by the uncertainty in the supply chain bottlenecks spread, not just by the fact that it's hard to reopen economies, much harder than it is to shut them down, to get all the pieces coordinated as you reopen again is proving to be a little tougher than we thought it would be. Add in, you know, Russia and Ukraine and um, war of aggression that Russia has launched on Ukraine, the impact on both energy prices and on other supply chain issues, particularly around basic commodities. And you have an incredibly uh, difficult environment that was not anticipated. Add in, thirdly, the fact that this recovery is totally different from any other we've seen in the post-war period. We've got loads of good data on what businesses and consumers do in uh, a rebound from an economic downturn in terms of uh, both commodities and intermediate and finished goods that we buy. What we don't know much about is a situation like the recovery we've had here where we didn't actually pull back on goods purchases all that much. You know, purchases of TVs and, you know, stuff for home gyms, that's Stuff went up as we went into the shutdown. What really pulled back was services because people stopped going out, they stopped traveling, they stopped getting their hair cut outside the home. Now we're seeing those services rebound, and that's a fundamentally different uh, recovery from anything we've seen before. So I mentioned all that to say we have to talk about this with a lot of modesty. Now, um, in Purely mathematical terms, we are likely to start seeing year-on-year -year inflation, which is what most central banks target, starting to come down. Supply chain bottlenecks are starting to resolve. 
you know, energy prices are high, but they're not going higher. And when we compare to a year ago, that base effect is going to start bringing that headline inflation rate down. But we still have a lot of um, momentum in the month-on-month or quarter-on-quarter measures of inflation. And that's where that services piece is really hard for central banks to understand, uh, because we've got a supply-constrained recovery, and it's not at all clear that the one screw that central banks have to turn, which is the interest rate, is going to assist us in getting price increases in that area down at all. That's difficult. It's a it's a it's a hammer to try to deal with, uh, you know, uh, tiny screws and stuff. Right. Can I ask one question? And you know, this is probably a loaded question, and there's not a right answer to it. But you talk about you know the support, the support, the support, and when was the right time to crank it up, and when was the right time to cut it off? But in your opinion, do you, would you do you think the Canadian government provided too much support? You know, there are all kinds of things that maybe could have done more perfectly, but again, having moved in real time with an enormous amount of of uncertainty and uh, a downturn, the magnitude of which we had never seen before that quickly, I think, you know, what they did was entirely appropriate for the moment. Um, You know, if we look at the Canadian economy and most Western economies, the amount of scarring from that downturn in terms of business bankruptcies or personal bankruptcies has been relatively small compared with the scale of what we were dealing with. It would have been much more expensive, I think, to not provide that support over the medium or longer term than to have provided it. Uh, The other thing to look at is, you know, while our, our deficit as a share of GDP popped up and our debt went up a bit, we are still uh, the economy with the best debt metrics in the G7 and amongst the debt metrics of any industrialized country. And with interest rates having been as low as they are and the transformation of some of our public debt into uh, lower rate products, we actually have debt service, the cost of carrying public debt as a share of GDP at the lowest level it's been at in 60 years. It was one of, was one of my next questions because I have read, um, although, yes, you're correct, you know, as far as like commodity spending, you know, everyone bought a TV, sure, during COVID, but no one went on vacation. Really, you know, the, ser- the, the service spending was way down. So the average household, either savings or income, I believe, is at one of the highest levels it's been in a number of years. And and I think, I think Canadians are sitting on an absorbent amount of cash in comparison to the normal. Is that is that fair? Yeah, we saw um, Canadian savings ratios really pop up uh, at the onset of the shutdown. Those have come down substantially, but we still have Canadian household balance sheets in relatively the best shape that they've been in in a decade. We're still heavily indebted, but we've also seen, and the data on this is a little uneven, the transformation of some of that debt into longer tenor, lower interest uh, terms. And so that's made that debt more sustainable than it was previously. We've also got businesses in the U.S. and Canada with the best corporate balance sheets they've had in ages. Where look, interest look, at the, look at the oil and gas business right now. I've, I've heard that yeah. their balance sheets are just looking better and better than ever. Oh, they're bulging. But then, you know, look across the entire economy in the U.S. and Canada, interest coverage ratios are very strong. Uh, Debt-to-asset ratios are some of the lowest they've been in a couple decades. Uh, And, you know, free cash flow 
is very strong. So while the stock market is pulled back in terms of the valuation of you know future earnings, businesses find themselves in a very different place going into you know what is a slower growth period right now than they have been on the eve of do, other do recessions. The, do you think or the pandemic is going to force? businesses to take a much more conservative approach on the way they operate and function at a lower, all, all the ratios you just mentioned, but in, ter- in, in particular, just carrying less debt, being more conservative, sitting on more cash, being prepared for a rainy day. You know, we have this, This, you know, my dad has a saying, he always says, cash isn't cash unless it's cash, right? <laughs> and uh, it's very true. And especially when all of a sudden everything dries up and all your customers are locked in their basements, mm-hmm. you don't have cash and you're full of debt. You don't survive. Do you think? Do you think what's happened is going to change the uh, attitudes of business owners, small business, small medium-sized business owners in particular? You know, it could, and you're going to have a better read on that in some ways than I am, given the the markets you're directly involved in. But on the flip side, you could say that. For instance, the increased regulation we had in the wake of the 2008-2010 global financial crisis has meant that big banks have to carry more risk-adjusted capital on their books as a cushion than they previously did. On the one hand, that could mean you know permanently lower growth because they're lending out less money and it's cycling through the economy fewer times. On the other hand, you know through this downturn, we've seen banks come through strongly. They haven't had to pull back on credit creation. We saw them learn that you know providing solvent households and businesses some breathing room when there's a completely unexpected shock actually ensures over time that you do better rather than worse by you know withdrawing uh, credit lines. You, know, you could easily see a situation too where the big lesson is uh, to keep doing business through a crisis because you know that you've got uh, some cushions there to protect you. Interesting. I, well, I have, a, I have a question on the on on. The banking side and uh, it's kind of the inflation side, but uh, but we get a lot of blame. I see a lot of it on online. People blame the Bank of Canada for for you know for the high house prices that we had because they've created all this money and flooded the system with money. But having worked at a bank, how much responsibility is on the actual lenders for? You know, creating money and and giving out so many mortgages is, is do they bear any responsibility for these this or really almost I, I will say it, we had like a bubble in house prices in January February March right how much of that is is the Bank of Canada's fault and and low overnight rate or how much of that is the actual lenders giving these mortgages out to people. Well, you know, again, I would come back to our early discussion around supply and demand. People are investing in real estate in our major markets, I think, because they can see that strong structural supply deficit, and that points to an asset that should perform decently over time. So, even though prices have gone up substantially, uh, I think people are making a risk-adjusted decision based on you know that read of where those markets are. It's worth remembering too, all those lending decisions are subject to a very strict uh, you know, stress test imposed by uh, the strict. banking regulators yeah. that requires people to be able to pay uh, a mortgage on those properties at more than two full points higher than they're contracting yeah, at. That's huge. And you know, it's it's unlikely that we're going to see, and that was already from a higher level. So it's unlikely we're going to see rates go high enough to really make those stress tests uh, look like they were insufficiently strict. 
in guiding lending decisions. So I think one of the big takeaways from the last 40 years or so in Canada is that we have a very well-regulated financial system. If you look at defaults on residential mortgages in Canada versus the U.S., the U.S. had a big spike during the 2008-2010 financial crisis. They bumped up again uh, during the pandemic shutdowns. Canada's rate of defaults has been on a very gradual but nevertheless declining trend through that entire period. That speaks to me to a financial system that is well-run, well-regulated, <laughs> and you know, hitting something that's close to the right balance. Talk, talk a little bit, because you, you mentioned this uh, when you spoke at our event. Um, just double down on that topic, because I think the the fear in the world is that everyone's going to default on their mortgage because interest rates are going up. But in theory, I think your your stance is that actually the opposite. Everyone's going to pay down their mortgage. They're going to want to have their home base taken care of. They have a family. The last thing that they're going to default on would be their mortgage. So that's what we've seen in Canada, and in part that's because uh, in some of our cities, you know, we have well functioning public transit systems for people to get to work. Uh, you know, they they can actually use public transit. In a lot of American cities, the last thing people default on is their car uh, because they need that car in order to get to work. They'll let a they'll let a home mortgage go before an auto payment wow. in some cases, and I think that's a mixed up prioritization, or yes. that's a system that's not actually enabling people to weather downturns uh, in quite, quite the right way. We know consistently in Canada that Canadians do prioritize their mortgage payments, and given that they have been stress-tested in that way before they undertake those mortgages, they are or should be in a situation where they can uh, meet those demands. Do you think Do you think home ownership, this is a little bit off topic, sorry, but do you think home ownership is overvalued in Canada? Because if you look at a lot of major cities in the world, like, I mean, home ownership isn't guaranteed. I think we look at home ownership as a society as you're going to, you grow up, you get a job, you buy a house, you have a family. But I don't think that attitude necessarily is consistent across all major cities in the world. As Canadians, is it something we've put too much ownership in and, and have we used our household equity as a pension for too long or is the system working? You know, I, I don't know what the right level of importance is to put on home ownership, but I think one of the reasons you have seen a prioritization of it by individual Canadians and households is because of those persistent undersupply issues. It's made it look like, and it has been, a great investment for most of the last 30 years or 40 years even. With and it's tax advantaged as well. Right. Tax advantage to some extent, not as tax advantage as in the United States, you yeah. know, where you've got deductibility on mortgage interest, and that that might be the step that goes a little too far. Um, I I don't think there's anything magical about home ownership. There's an asset there, just as any other asset, but it's been an asset because of those persistent underbuilding uh, problems we've seen that has made sense for people to invest in. And I think you know the priority people have put on it in Canada reflects that. So yeah. if we want to change people's preferences there, we need to change the supply and demand dynamic. Ben, I, th I think we should... Uh do a bit of a shift. This is a Toronto under construction podcast. A lot of our listeners are developers in the business. Should we talk about city planning a little bit, or should we talk about <laughs> entitlement? Should we talk about I, you know? I read Maybe all we the need to make this two shows. I always read all the economics <laughs> publications put out by CIBC and RBC and Scotia Bank and National Bank, and they all analyze third party housing data. Yet they're sitting on 
a gold mine of internal information that that's not averaged, average, average, average. It's the individual transactions. We could provide a gold mine of, of information to 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 the world, yet that that never gets analyzed and never gets put out publicly. Why is that? Well, you know, I think there are are proprietary concerns, you know, around the use of uh, banking data. Uh, there are concerns about privacy. There are concerns about competitive or uh, market uh, position, and you know, unwittingly revealing something about internal operations that uh, overrides the use of some of that internal data. But we did see a really strong move by all the major uh, banking financial institutions in Canada through the pandemic to start uh, writing about and in an anonymized, highly aggregated way, uh, talking about how their transaction data was evolving. So, in my former role at Scotia, we published uh, a series that was regularly updated on credit card and debit card transaction data, and it showed, you know, total volumes, which sectors, you know, had saw the biggest decline in activity and which ones were seeing the biggest and quickest recoveries. And so, that added a lot to our real-time analysis of how the pandemic's impact on the economy was developing. And so, I think you're going to see more of that because I think there was a of a seal broken there that may lead to us seeing, uh, you know, more detailed but highly aggregate information on how things like the mortgage market are developing. We're seeing it, you know, on consumer credit as well, over and above just that transaction data. Yeah. Yeah, this is the problem: is we we have people with limited knowledge and statistics talk a lot about it, right? And they take one aggregated number and this aggregated number, and they're totally. Different uh, samples, all right. So they're not comparing the same thing, and then they're drawing conclusions off the difference in with the way that two samples are moving when they're completely different. It's not apples to apples, right? So that always drives me mad, right? And we want to be able to go as granular as possible to to dig down and see what's uh, see what's happening. So, well, anyways. you know, sometimes the granular isn't the thing that's going to really tell you what's going on in the macro. It'll give the you macro, a very yeah. specific story about a single sector or business, but you know, the whole point of the macro data is to give you sense of how the economy as a whole or a region as a whole is developing. The problem is with the more macro the data is, the longer it takes to get it. So you've got a much bigger lag. And when you're dealing with a situation where things were developing as quickly as they have the last two years, getting a read on where trends were going required something uh, that updated much more quickly. Interesting. Interesting. Steve, you want to go to the micro or you well, want to stay in the listen, macro? I, I just, uh, I'm cognizant of, of the time and I, I would love to, you know, I'll ask you a macro question on a micro topic, <laughs> but, but, you know, and I'll, and I'll just open it up to you, but, but I know you and I spoke at not length, but a little bit about just sort of actually here, I'll play the picture for you. So we're standing, we had an event at the CN tower and we're standing at the top of the CN tower and we're sort of facing Northeast and just looking over, you know, like the different neighborhoods and you could see, you know, the pockets of, of low-rise residential. You could see, obviously, the nodes of higher density. And, um, you know, you could see the traffic. And it's, it was quite interesting to sort of stand there and look at the city and say, you know, like, first of all, we, we're so lucky. This is a, it's an amazing city. It's a world-class city. We're, we're so fortunate to live here. But at the same time, there just are so, there seem to be so many problems and, and there seem to be so many planning problems and housing costs is a problem and affordability is a problem and supply is a problem and 
transportation is a massive problem. We were looking, I think we were standing out there looking at the the gardener and I mean, we've locked the gardener into whatever, four or six lanes or whatever it is, like it's done, right? And that, that congestion is only going to get worse. So this is not, not specifically, but, you know, from your perspective, you know, what do we need to do to, to continue to move the city in the direction of, bec- of continuing to become or be being a world-class city. I know one, one thing you had mentioned, I think was, was the waterfront, you know, that could, they could have done that better, but you know, just that if you were a policy planner and you had, you know, the magic wand of the city or the province, what, where would you start? Well, you know, at the federal level, the last budget brought in a, a city innovation fund that is meant to incentivize municipalities to do things that will allow greater building to happen, greater densification to happen. What I like about that is it doesn't prescribe a single behavior, but it opens up uh, a honeypot to incentivize experimentation, to uh, provide cities some backing for doing things that may be risky or that haven't been tried before. I think you know, that's a great route for the federal government to keep pursuing because they don't have any direct lever on what happens at the uh, city level. At the provincial level, the moves that are happening in Ontario and BC to move to, you know, more citywide and neighborhood-wide zoning on plans that then essentially allow anything that fits with that zoning to go ahead and not be subject to continual reopening uh, once a plan has been put into place. And we're seeing that with the approval uh, just in the last few days of Vancouver's uh, urban plan, I think is a really positive development to ensure that we can go from conceptualization of projects to actual execution more quickly. And then at the interface between the province and the city, uh, both here in Toronto and in many uh, parts of Canada, I think greater coordination on those services has got to be something we find, whether it's social services, education, public transit, and then the housing piece. We need to think about those and plan and execute on them in a much more coordinated way. Yeah. (laughs) I do have a question, though. People always complain if you know, bank economists are too positive because they are protecting the mortgage portfolio of the company. Did you ever have a higher up read something that that you wrote and ask you to tone it down? No, I have to say uh, that was a small concern uh, when I went into my previous role in a, a big universal bank. And I never received uh, pressure, either pushing me to write something in particular or to edit uh, a piece that we put out. That said, you know, I think most bank economists are mindful of the role they play, which is uh, in a large financial institution that has particular interests. And I think, you know, responding to that by taking a just-the-facts ma'am manner and really focusing on the data and not editorializing a ton is one way in which you know you can say very interesting things in that seat that uh, respects the interests of the institution and you know the the neutral place it needs to sit on politics uh, but still allows you to be incisive um, I think the Canadian bank economics departments are in an amazing uh, situation because by some accident of history or maybe it was by intent but so far back I don't know who can corroborate one way or the other the Canadian banks put all of their macro research out on their websites on an open source basis you don't have to be a client to read it uh, that means that 
those economics research groups get to play a role in public discourse in Canada that I think is truly different from economists at Goldman or Morgan uh, in the States or Barclays in the UK, where everything they do is behind a paywall. I think that's a really uh, useful public good that the banks provide here. Yeah, no doubt. Interesting. So, just last question. I'm gonna I'm gonna just go back to my my interest in in our uh, listener base. A lot of developers, real estate investors. You know, if you had to give one piece of advice to someone either thinking about buying an investment property or buying a development site or launching their project for sales in in this market, um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about what's happening in terms of like you know development charges are going up. They've increased the cost of parkland dedication. There's inclusionary zoning. Interest rates are up. You know, that seems like a, a market full of turmoil, but developers are sitting on sites that might be site plan approved for four or 500 units ready to go. You know, is this, is this a good time to launch? Would you hold off or, uh, you know, just any advice for, for the development community from, from, a, from your perspective? You know, we focus in the public discussion so much on the marginal recent developments around where are interest rates going, uh, where is uh, inflation going, what is likely to happen on new policies that are coming through. But I think the fundamental thing, and I've come back to it again and again in our discussion that yeah. we need to focus on, is supply and demand dynamics. There's a national piece to that. There's a regional or city piece to that. There's also a neighborhood and a sectoral piece to that. Read those supply and demand dynamics to the the extent that you can get down to the data on that, that's going to be the biggest determinant on whether over you know, time uh, an investment in a particular area is going to do well or not. If you look at you know, the late 80s, early 90s in Toronto, there was a massive supply overhang. It probably wouldn't have mattered what you invested in then. Right. It was going to be uh, a not great performer for five, six, or seven years. Right now, where we have a massive supply deficit, I think you know, you could get a pullback or some stagnation for a year or two, but you're in a, a secular situation where demand is continuing to outstrip supply uh, for the next few years, and that ought to be supportive. I like it. That's a good All question. Right, so we, we do, uh, at the end of, of, of each podcast, we do what's called the rapid fire. So we yeah. basically we hit you with a bunch of quick questions, preferably yes or no, if the, the question obviously uh, uh, can take something like that. And if not, we try to keep them really close. Steve will, if yeah. he hears something interesting, he'll try to say, well, expand on that, but just ignore him if he does say <laughs> that. And I will ask another <laughs> question. Stay on one sentence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, in that case, you're going first. Okay. Uh, from an economist's perspective, is rent control good or bad for the average tenant? The average tenant is uh, likely on the lower income side of the spectrum, so it's probably good in the short term, but bad in terms of long-term supply. That is that was the same yeah. answer I would get. I have so many. Okay. I have so many following questions. I can't believe I'm not allowed to ask them. <laughs> Should no. Canada have a universal basic income? I've been a strong advocate for universal basic income, and I think the experience during the pandemic with the CERB shows it could have a really profoundly good effect on Canadians. We saw people use pandemic support to retrain, look after their health, take care of their families. And it is an absolute myth that pandemic support kept people on the sidelines as the recovery has gone forward. The core working age population in Canada, 25 to 54, 
the highest proportion of that uh, age bracket is working in our history in Canada. So the myth of people sitting on the couch because they got government support payments is exactly that. It's a big myth. That's awesome. That's awesome. I would. uh, I'm I'm a fan of UBI. I'd like to see us us try it. Uh, From your perspective, is the mortgage stress test working? Yeah, I think it is working. As we talked about, we've (laughs) seen defaults on mortgages in Canada trend down over the last 30 to 40 years, even as they've spiked through big economic crises in the U.S. So I think it's working, and it could be fine-tuned further, but in the broad, it's doing its job. The City of Toronto wants developers to build 10% of the units with affordable prices. Should we require grocery stores and car companies to do something similar? (laughs) Well, the thing is about uh, grocery stores and cars, uh, they can pick up and move, whereas a house or a unit is a house. So, you know, they're not really comparing apples to apples there, that question. And I know you guys like apples to apples. So. Okay, this is a good one. Should Toronto spend $600 million on some stupid soccer tournament? You know, I would say it's probably not a great investment. Most economists who study these big events say it's uh, mainly a big transfer of wealth to the organizers and uh, not a net generator of income for wherever they happen. Is that, uh, is that, a, is that a general comment for, like, Olympics for the, any city? Well, I, I, we, ju- we just Absolutely. got the – didn't we get we – did we get did we actually win it? We got the World Cup, right? I don't know. No, we, we got just, a piece we're, of it. We're one of, the, we're of, one of okay. four cities, I think. Uh, yeah, we got a piece America. of it, and, you know – I would say $600 million could put in another LRT or a streetcar line somewhere in the city. That'd be a better investment in my mind. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm gonna leave it. I got a, a lot of comments on. No. We don't talk about soccer. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Is there any advantage to a country running a budget surplus? Entirely depends on the circumstances. If they've got nothing in, to invest in and uh, they need to pay down ruinous debt, then a surplus can make a lot of sense. If they're in a situation where private demand is deficient, which is what we saw during the pandemic, and we need to sustain activity, then the deficit is exactly what we should run. That's the big insight from Keynes. So, I love having economists on the show. Don't ask follow-up questions. So Don't ask follow-up. <laughs> okay. We've had a ton of cyclists on our podcast. Why do they complain about on Twitter about cars not stopping at stop signs, but don't stop at them themselves? You know, as both a car driver and a cyclist, I'm going to own my hypocrisy when, when I'm driving a car one day a week to see my family out in the countryside. I hate every cyclist at intersections that don't, that don't follow the rules. On the other side, when I'm on a bike and, you know, there's no traffic or there's an opportunity, I'll admit I, I sometimes run a red. So I think that kind of hypocrisy is sort of endemic on was this there, question. Was there too many bike lanes put in during the pandemic when there wasn't a lot of car traffic? And in hindsight, once everyone gets back to driving their car, is the traffic going to be worse because of all these street activations, bike lanes in particular, Cafe T.O., that then maybe we had anticipated or planned for? Well, you know, uh, I think the initial uh, results on what's happened on Bloor with the uh, Cafe T.O. and the bike lanes has shown that business is up along the street rather than down. Um, Our... our 
you know, comparator studies from places like Paris, as it's put in a lot more biking, you know, 40 or 50 years in Amsterdam. Amsterdam didn't always look the way it does. It, you know, was clogged with cars in the 1970s. And I think the initial intuition that slows everything down actually is being proven again and again wrong, that it actually, in a more people-centered way, gets more people more places. But does it snow nine months of the year in Amsterdam? <laughs> that That is the big question. Steve, you want to get one of those bikes, you know those people that ride down the street with the, their, the bike on their tire is like a uh, size of like a monster on. truck? You get one of those bikes and you can, you can take it in the winter and drive down to work. It's never happening. Yeah, I'm a big advocate for uh, <laughs> the Toronto Bike Share 24, four, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, okay, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this guy's last name right, but Gil Penalosa is running for mayor. Does he have any realistic shot of winning? I gotta admit, I don't know who that is. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know who that is either. It's a hard no. <laughs> All right, uh, we last got, we question. Got, we got one more. Should on there be any new highways built in the GTA? I have to say the proposal to build two more highways put forward in the last provincial election is one of the most wrong-headed public policy ideas we've seen in this province in 40 or 50 years. It's a terrible investment. It's going to compromise the green belt. It's not going to get anywhere anyone anywhere faster than before. We know highways get filled as soon as they're built, and it's hard not to see it as uh, what could be a cynical attempt to raise land values around those roads for the people who own them. It's not good for Ontario, and it's not going to be good, really, for most people in this province. Wow. Hot take. Wow. My favorite thing about you, Brett, is that you have an opinion. You're not afraid to share it. You are a one-handed economist, and it is very (laughs) refreshing. Whether I agree or disagree or any of our listeners agree or disagree, at least you you have an opinion. You state it, and then you back it up with with, uh, real points. So for that, I, uh, I respect you, and I thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. I wish we had another few hours, but maybe we'll do it again. Like you said, you're only five minutes away by bike share. On that bike lane. <laughs> on the bike lane. Right by Bloor. Yeah. That goes right by Bloor. And, uh, you know, we'd love we'd love to do it again if uh, if you're open to it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll see so, you soon. And if someone wants to wants to connect and uh, and, and, and find you and, and use your services or have you do a presentation, where, where do they find you? Yeah, so I'm relatively active on Twitter at Brett E. House. Uh, there's another Brett House economist out there at the <laughs> University of Berkeley, specialist on aquaculture. Um, so I get some random emails now and then I get about fish. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn and easy to find there. So uh, I'm happy to connect anytime. My DMs are open. Awesome. awesome. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been fun.